the biggest leading indicators, we did the pick a pay loans. And I'm sure the old guys are laughing when I say the pick a pay loans. That's the leading indicator. We were lending money to anyone who could breathe. Um, World Savings was conservative, but other people started coming up with their own products, similar. That was a leading indicator when I saw no one had skin in the game. They were getting 100% financing. I was buying homes in Reno, sight unseen, 100% financing. That's when I'm like, this doesn't add up. And then I went to a mortgage office and this guy was selling debt settlement. I said, what are you doing? He says, this is great. I'm killing it. We're helping people with their credit card debt. I said, that's exactly what I want to get into. I see that's going to be huge here in the next couple of years. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast Show. I have a very special guest today, Ray Cardano. Man, Ray, the reason I'm bringing you onto the show today is I feel like you're living the real American dream, or at least maybe the entrepreneur's dream, is you're living a life of passive wealth. You have unlocked a certain level of financial freedom that a lot of people envy. And so when I heard your story before, and, and it's been you know a few months that we've got a chance to, to, to connect up, and I was just like, wow, I need other people to hear your story. But before we get into that, I'd love to hear, like, talk me through not where today is, but like, how did you get started? Tell me about your, a little bit, your history, your background of who is Ray. Well, great. Well, thanks, Jake, for having me on here. I'm excited to be part of this. My story was the leave it to Beaver's family. I uh, had mom and dad that are considered my best friends and a brother who's considered my best friend. And we were at dinner table every night. I didn't know what my dad did until I was in college. Grew up in Sacramento, went to Holy Spirit and then Christian Brothers and then went on to college. Lived that linear path and had a great upbringing and a great childhood and admired the fact that my dad was always there for my, my sports and my, uh, and at dinner table. And I wanted to have that for my family when I grew up. So what, what did your dad do? So my dad uh, is in commercial real estate. It's a big commercial uh, real estate in Sacramento. I didn't even know about it until, like I said, in college, they bought a lot of commercial buildings in the seventies and eighties, uh, the 
my cousins were in the shopping center business and they, they were lease agents and acquired real estate slowly but surely throughout the years and were very conservative and lived a debt-free lifestyle. So they lived a debt-free lifestyle. So that, let, let me dive into that a little bit. So they had shopping centers. So like malls and, you know, strip centers and things like that. Did they build them? Did they buy them? You know, what, what did you see your dad doing when, when you grew up? I didn't see, it was mainly my cousins. So my dad was part of that family and he was leasing the shopping center. So that's probably why he was home every night for dinner. But, uh, my great uncle was probably started developed the first shopping center, I believe in California, if not Northern California off of sunrise. And uh, my dad was responsible for going to all the shopping centers and leasing them. They had one in Chico, Walla Walla, Florin Mall, Sunrise Mall. And that's kind of was his job as I was growing up. But like I said, he never talked about it. He never brought work home and had to finally ask questions when I was in college and in my 20s to dive in a little bit more into real estate and started becoming more and more interested in it. But the funny thing is I know I never wanted to be in commercial real estate because I saw my dad, um, not really stressed, but I would see when a tenant would leave and that the, the building would be vacant for a year or six months. And I didn't want that lifestyle, but I knew I wanted to be in real estate and have that freedom. Freedom was big for me, seeing that that's how I wanted to raise my family and that's how I grew up. And I figured real estate was the channel. I've always had that entrepreneur spirit. and so I wanted to start making money right away in college. And I ended up working for Cutco Knives. Cutco, I attribute to my success. I think every person, if they want to know the key to success or in their 20s, is they got to learn sales, whether it's knocking on doors, selling knives. My dad jokes, I think he spent a lot of money in my college. He said it was a waste of money. I should have just did Cutco for four years. That's where I learned personal growth. That's where I learned how to read books. And that's where I learned that I knew I wanted to work for myself. That, that is uh, very interesting. I, I know a lot of people that have come from the Cutco world, you know, the, the Hal Elrods yes. and um, you know, John Vroman's also a friend of mine. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. Like what, what was that like being a, a door-to-door salesman that taught you those kind of next levels of, of skill sets that, you know, propelled you for, you know, maybe real life? It was sky's the limit that I could earn the income that I was wanting to work. And I was a go-getter and I knew if I put in more hours, I could make more money. Um, the energy, the culture of going into a sales office, I thought Cutco did a fabulous job of creating a positive culture. The training was phenomenal. And I wanted to be around that atmosphere. I wanted to be around that type of culture and those people. And it really set me to the next level where I knew I wanted to, to own a business run a business and have people underneath me and implement that Cutco culture. But I also knew I had a lot to learn and I knew sales was going to get that to me. So after uh, Cutco, I, I mean, I literally opened the door when I graduated from college to get any job I wanted. I moved to Boston, was a mutual fund wholesale rep, traveled the world, and then eventually came to Sacramento and worked at World Savings as an uh, outside rep. And that's where I really got the chance to study businesses, particularly the mortgage business during the early 2000s when everyone was crushing it and they were spending more money than they were bringing in. And I took note of that. I mean, I, I serviced over a hundred accounts and I would say all of those accounts, maybe 
one or two of them survived during that 089 crash. And I particularly studied that and wanted to make sure that I didn't do that. So I ended up starting a debt settlement company, realizing the crash was coming and implemented the strategies and businesses that I learned from studying those mortgage companies for the last eight years. So you said you did mutual funds, you're selling those and they took you all over the world. So what, what was that? What were you doing selling mutual funds and, and where was all over the world for you? Well, the United States. So I was, I represented Pioneer Mutual Funds and I, re, and I only worked with the high advisors. They were called RIAs. And these are the ones that really studied uh, mutual funds or investments and, and wanted to present that to their clients. So I would have to meet with them and explain to them why I thought Pioneer fit in their, in their portfolio. Um, it was an interest. It was a great business. They gave me over a hundred thousand dollars to spend to wine and dine these reps. Um, maybe it is a little crooked business. That's why the mutual funds have tons of fees. I learned that I did not want to be in the stock market. In fact, uh, I hardly ever invest in the stock market because I saw the other side of it and I wanted to sleep good at night. And I knew that was something I could not control like what we're experiencing today. Yeah, that's interesting. How how many of the things that you've done in life also kind of uh, taught you what you didn't want to do, you know, as far as evidence. And so that's one of the things I talk about with people is like, just take action. Oftentimes, even if it's in the wrong direction, you'll discover the fact that it's like, wait, I don't like this or I, I don't want to do this. And that allows you to kind of kind of pivot there. Uh, so you where did your wife and, and now your kids and stuff, when did that come in? Was that something that you met on the East Coast or is, is she local here to the Sacramento kind of area? So to kind of back up and I'll get to that question. So I, I, I was in the mutual fund business and I knew I wanted to get back into real estate. So I moved back to Sacramento and had a good buddy work for World Savings and got back in the real estate side. I bought my first house in 2000 and just like everybody saw the appreciation, I'm like, wow, this is great. This is easy money. Let's go for it. And again, learning from my Cutco background and my dad always saying, find a good mentor. No matter what you do, go find a mentor. And I studied the Sacramento market and I wanted to see who the best flipper was out there. And I reached out to my buddy who I went to elementary school with. And I said, look, I just want to learn from you. I want to flip properties. I'll be the money guy because I was making good money on my W-2. And I just wanted to learn. So we flipped homes from 2002 to about 2006. And then all of a sudden, as you know, the market crashed and I was bought $3 million upside down. And that was kind of maybe my first stressful moment of in the business world of like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? Am I going to, is this whole freedom thing not what it was supposed to be cracked up to be? So you're flipping houses in the early 2000s before the market crashes. Yep. Easy money coming up, you know, the market's appreciating. And then the market corrects and you have millions of dollars of, of real estate. Yeah. So I'm millions of dollars in real estate upside down, figuring out how to short sale, how to get out of this. And I tribute to my Cutco background of adversity and knowing that, you know, failing is the time to learn. And that's when I hunkered down and started reading tons of books of, okay, there's, there's a reason why I'm going through this. How am I going to get out of this? I read lots of books, but the one book that stood out and everyone knows the name is the rich dad, poor dad. 
And it was the word cash flow that I didn't realize until learning the hard way because I was minus maybe 10, 20 grand on all these flips every month. I'm just carrying the notes. And I said, okay, this makes sense. I got a cash flow. And more importantly, he says, well, you got to buy a house that's going to give you the 1%, meaning buy a house for a hundred grand and get a thousand a month in rent. I said, well, geez, there's no way I'm going to do this in Sacramento. I don't think it's ever been like that. So reading that book and knowing I was upside down gave me the confidence and courage because I wasn't married, didn't have kids to continue going. And then all of a sudden there was homes on the steps selling for 80, 90 grand that were renting for a thousand bucks. And I'm like, wow, okay, here it is. Here's the opportunity that rich dad, poor dad, uh, that I learned from. And with the, and he said, dude, order to buy those homes, you got to start a business. So I started the debt settlement business. I said, now it's time to do it. Took all the best mortgage guys in Sacramento and literally took every single nickel I made every single month and bought homes on the steps and was living paycheck to paycheck, very frugal until my income was higher to my expenses. And then I knew I was going to hit freedom and shut down the business and live off my rental income. So you as a working for world savings, uh, doing mortgages, seeing people live in excess, um, and obviously flipping and seeing the appreciation go up of uh, really fast in the 2000, kind of was a leading indicator for you to see that maybe this debt consolidation or debt settlement uh, business would have been viable? The biggest leading indicator is we did the pick-a-pay loans, and I'm sure the old guys are laughing when I say the pick-a-pay loans. That's the leading indicator. We were lending money to anyone who could breathe, um, world savings was conservative, but other people started coming up with their own products similar. That was a leading indicator. When I saw no one had skin in the game, they were getting hundred percent financing. I was buying homes in Reno sight unseen, hundred percent financing. That's when I'm like, this doesn't add up. And then I went to a mortgage office and this guy was selling debt settlement. I said, what are you doing? He says, this is great. I'm killing it. We're helping people with their credit card debt. I'm said, that's exactly what I want to get into. I see that's going to be huge here in the next couple of years. So you'd read rich dad, poor dad. He said, start a business so that you can use that. So you just, you know, went out and said, Hey, debt settlement, let's do that. And, and, you know, so talk me through starting that business and even the, uh, what, what, how did that scale up for you? So it's $3 million in debt working at World Savings. Now Wachovia, they bought us out. Wachovia uh, laid me off. I got, I don't know, $150,000 in settlement money. I said, okay, here we go. I want to start my business. This is going to be my seed money. I want to do the debt settlement. I got lucky, really lucky. And we'll probably go a little bit later in this, but I'm a big people person. I'm not a real estate guy. Um, I believe in people. And I was paired up with someone who I thought was really good in the mortgage industry. And I said, let's do this together because I'm, I'm the architect. I always knew that, but I wanted to test it. I closed my first debt settlement deal and I'm like, wow, this is going to work, but I'm never going to work in the business. I want to work on the business. So I teamed up with this guy who operated my business and he was the one that over, I would just recruit the sales reps, bring them in. He would get them implemented. He would run operations. We sent out mailers because that's what I thought was very successful with the mortgage industry. And we got to the point where we're spending probably three, $400,000 a month on mailers and killing it. 
We slowly grew the company because I saw people in the mortgage industry go from zero to 50 overnight, and that's how they failed. So it was a good 18-month process of going from zero to about 30 sales reps, and that's what really helped me survive the, 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 the downtime because I didn't break even until about month 18. Wow, that's, uh, you know... Man, I just because uh, I, I think back to my own story of of being in that place is like I had a hard time doing anything, like just even moving in any direction, because you know, similar to you, like I was in the hole. I had negative net worth, you know. I had all these properties, and I was trying to figure out how to short sale or how to go through them, and maybe it's also maybe you know. I, I didn't have the, you know, the Cutco background or anything, you know, as far as anybody to even talk to my dad was a, a police officer, you know, my dad, you know, his advice was just work harder. Um, and, uh, so I commend you from that and you, and you, so you said you're taking this money, you've started developing and building a, a business. You've grown it over 18 months. Um, you know, you said 300,000 a month in, in marketing. So, I mean, like what kind of revenue are you talking about with this company? We got to the point where we're bringing in about a million dollars a month. Um, and you know, I, I would, I just always was good with numbers. I didn't want to be that next mortgage guy that was left with nothing. And my expertise was studying the numbers every day. I was looking at the bank account five times a day. I was having cash flow projections, profit and loss projections, and it was all based on how much money do I have left over every single week to go to the courthouse steps and buy homes. That was my only motivation. That was my only incentive. And I was laser focused on that instead of reinvesting it back into the business. Yeah, that's interesting because the, the courthouse steps, I mean, you know, in 09, 10, 11, 12, I mean, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, there was just so many properties. So talk about that. Like what, what was your um, investment strategy or thesis? So you're, you know, you, you're building up your business. You're getting every last nickel and dime out of the business each week so that you can go to auction next week. And so like, what were you trying to buy at auction to, to, you know, be laser focused in, in your investment strategy? So again, going back to the people business and, and I knew so many people in Sacramento for uh, being a mortgage wholesale rep is I wanted to hire the best person on the steps to go and buy me homes. And so I reached out to a couple mortgage ex mortgage guys and finally found someone who was doing this for six months, gave them a shot. And it worked great. I had to pay, pay him $5,000 per property that they actually bought for me. They would go out and visit the property. They would go do the title search. Again, I'm passive. I'm not doing anything. I'm the idea guy. I'm taking a chance on this. Yeah, I could lose. And we can go into stories that I've lost a lot of money to people who I believed in. So I have more failure stories on believing in people than success stories. But I struck gold again the second time by finding a great team to go to the steps every day and, and buy me homes. We got to about 28 homes. My income finally exceeded my expenses. And I said, okay, this is great. I'm not going to be a pig. I'm going to take a step back. Regulation started happening in debt settlement. And I decided this is the time to be free. I closed down the business. I stopped buying because Blackstone uh, came in and started bidding way above values. I was at my above 100 percenters. And I said, okay, I'm at 30, 31. I'm going to retire and live the life I want every single day. 
Wow. I mean, what a, an awesome uh, story and trajectory as, as far as from that, just being disciplined and, and executing a, a business plan and a model. There's um, some things that I've even quoted in my book, you know, that uh, the Rothschilds said it is about um, executing your game plan, uh, essentially summarizing is that, you know, the you know, the time to buy is when there's blood in the streets, even if the blood's your own. So it sounds like you had that similar story. And so you got back out there, you started buying the markets, you know, collapsing instead of trying to time the market and keeping and getting uh, greedy. You said, yeah, this is the time I've, I've done and executed my business plan um, to, to my existence. So now at that point, so what is that? That's 2012, 2013, 2012. Yep you know, Blackstone, cause they came into the market. Um, you know, I remember that they it was like a giant vacuum of, of capital flooding in and taking every last deal that they could possibly buy. And I mean, they have billions of dollars, you know, you're playing with millions and they have billions, you know, you lose. It's like, you know, uh, bring in a gun to a knife fight, you know? And it was like, they win or bazooka or tank or whatever they have. It was, it was, it was impressive. Um, so you're then living off of the, the rental income at that point. Is that correct? Yeah. So I'm living off the rental income, living a great life. Um, then that's when I meet my wife and we settle down and have kids immediately. And then all of a sudden my, my expenses go through the roof and I'm like, okay, how do I work smarter versus harder? And my buddy opened up an Airbnb in Groveland and was killing it. And I'm like, man, that makes sense. So I converted eight of my homes to Airbnbs. This was in 2012, 13, refinanced my homes, took the money out and made it really, really nice. And again, going back to my model of, I'm not going to work on these Airbnbs. I got to go find the best person for the Airbnbs. So I went on the Sacramento VRBO website and back then there was only maybe 20, 30 homes. And I clicked on every one of them to see if there was a common property, not a property manager because they didn't exist back then, but a common person that was managing more than two properties. And I, her face showed up. I got her contact information. And again, I said, this sounds good. I trust you. Let's go for it. And today we've been working great ever since. It was the best partnership I've ever been in. She took it over. She converted eight of my homes over five-year period to Airbnb. And I tripled my income so that it would still can exceed my expenses. And another great move um, as far as, again, believing in people and figuring out a way to increase my passive income versus going out there and have, finding earned income. I think there's so much value to that. The way that you just, your genius and uh, approach to, to life is you're not trying to think about how do I do this? The, the book, the who, not how, like you've just always been finding the who's, you know, how, who are, you know, who can do this, who can do this, not how do I do this? And I mean, you know, so many people talk about that. And I think maybe as entrepreneurs or DIYers, they always think about just doing it themselves. And what an amazing lesson that is for people listening to this podcast is, is thinking about that first and foremost. And, and, and Ray even talked about being the architect, designing this. One of the other things I've just even hearing, hearing your story is 
seeing how you're an early adopter and just understanding or seeing these things. So maybe if you can kind of talk about that, and, and I don't know if you realize that, but like you were three, four, five, six years ahead of the Airbnb kind of curve of that everyone else picked up. Buying in 2009 at the trustee st uh, steps was very early. You know, I, I it was very limited competition back in those days. And obviously 11, 12, the big, the big boys showed up and kind of almost put us out of business. So uh, what is it? And even same that the debt settlement early in the debt settlement early in those other things. So uh, talk to me about that. Like, what is that in, in you or your upbringing or is that Cutco uh, that gave you the clue for being such an early adopter to these trends? I don't know if it was Cutco or my upbringing that taught me this, but I, I'm a one percenter. I don't want to do what 99% of the people are doing. So if 99% of the people are buying multifamilies or if 99% of the people are in the dot-com business, I experienced that in 99 and 2000, I want to be the complete opposite. So being around the block and studying business every single day for the last 30 years, I found that being the 1% versus the 99%, that's the way to make money. So I'm constantly, every day, I spend a good three to four hours looking at investment ideas, looking at that 1% idea. I mean, I arbitrage timeshares and I talk to everybody and no one's ever heard of it or done anything. So I find little niche markets and I go for it. And like I said, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I did that I failed at. And you learn from that um, during the, during the time of, the last 10 years when multifamilies were great, I took a million up, million and a half out and gave it to someone to buy multifamilies and the contractor embezzled money and I lost every single nickel of that. So like I said, there's been times where I've failed at it, but I chalk it up as a learning experience. I chalked it up that it did not impact my freedom. It did not uh, decrease my cash flow and I need to learn from this and move on. The problem is I don't think I'll ever do a syndication but I'm always studying the market and trying to find that 1% investment idea. That's a great way of uh, looking at the world. I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, what is your day-to-day -day look like now? And part of that, just because that's where I think uh, I first got to hear a little bit of what you do every day. And it was like, wait, what is that? What is Ray doing? What are you doing to live that life? So I love my mornings. Give a shout out to Hal and the Miracle Morning. I love getting up at 530 in the morning and doing my ritual. I stretch a lot. I journal a lot. Gratitude is a big thing. I learned that from my mom. I've, I've been doing gratitude since I was 12 years old. So I think that has a lot to do with my success. The morning starts my day. So there's a good two hours where I'm doing busy work. I'm meditating and I'm getting ready for my day because once 8 a.m. starts, I don't want to think about work. I just want to be present and enjoy my life. Kids wake up. I'm there for them in the morning. I take them to school. Been doing yoga at 9 a.m. for the last 12 years, four or five days a week. Um, I try to go have lunch with a buddy. Now we're now we're walking because <laughs> lunching because I'm trying to lose weight and uh, do have better health. So I go walk with a friend. I love coaching. I coach girls flag football, boys flag football, middle school uh, basketball. And the only motivation I have for coaching is to teach these kids adversity, teach these kids the word no. I don't care what sport it is. I'll coach it if I can deliver that message. I feel that if, 
if I can reach out to as many kids as possible and teach them adversity and the word no, that's kind of my purpose. I think I've fulfilled my life. Then I'll go home and maybe take a nap, get ready for the rest of the evening and uh, settle down with the family in the evening time. It's very important to me to be there for my family every night. See, that's why, that's why I was, uh, you know, waiting for that punchline of, uh, for the people listening to this podcast, like listen to that life, like listen to the way that, that it, Ray has structured, um, his day. And I mean, so many people I talk to, that's what their, their dream life is what you're doing is, uh, living off of this, this passive wealth. And, and so many people are looking to get to the other side of that. You were able to execute this, this business plan. Um, what is it that you're doing now? You said you've, you've kind of leaned into the 1%, um, what everyone else is not doing. Uh, so what is your, your, you know, investments that you're looking at today or what are you excited about? So there's two investments that I'm really, really excited about. Um, I'm not a big guy in saying how many doors you own. Um, it just doesn't resonate strong with me. I think it's more of an ego play than a financial sense play. I love the Airbnb market. I, I just love the energy about it. But I don't want to go buy 100 more doors or 50 more doors and Airbnb them. So I want to have high-end luxury Airbnbs and buy one good one every year. And again, I need to reverse engineer this. I'm not going to do it unless I find somebody to manage it. So I went to my network and I asked people around, hey, do you know anyone that manages high-end Airbnbs? And one of my good friends told me in his mastermind group, this guy would be perfect for you. I said, great. So I called him up. Within 10 minutes, I sent him $7,500 to go find me a property nationwide and within two months, he found that property. I haven't seen it. I have zero desire to see it. I'm trusting this guy. He's going to manage it, do it all for me. And we just closed on this and we should hopefully be up and running here in the next couple of months. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are, where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. So, luxury Airbnb, quality, you know, units versus quantity. I think that's a, that's a great little uh, insight into the market. Obviously, I'm sure you have your secret sauce of where you're looking for and, and what the market's in, um, 
but I mean, what, what a great business plan, you know, one a year, that doesn't seem too terribly difficult. I mean, the secret sauce is the person. If that person told me to buy in Virginia, I'm going to buy in Virginia. He told me to buy in North Carolina. I bought in North Carolina. I am investing in people because I don't want to sacrifice the freedom or the lifestyle I've set up every day. And I have zero desire to run it again. I want to be the architect. So it's find the person first and run with the idea. Yeah, I know that is probably something I struggle with a lot is I want I want to go like, you know, put 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 my hands on on the stuff and do the things. But it's like uh, so many. And actually, to be honest with you, now that I'm thinking about it, some of my most successful investments are things that I just had a team that was put into place that I didn't do anything like you know, uh, I don't know if you you know heard this, but you know I, we flipped something like thirteen hundred properties in twenty three states. Uh, I did not see the vast majority of those properties. No idea where they are. Couldn't even tell you the address. You know uh, what city? Uh, I kind of knew regions, but it was because we had a team, we had people in place, and they were doing it and leaning into it all day and every day. And so, that's uh, sage sage advice. So I'd like to kind of take back a little bit because I think there's a lot of value in it, but talk to me about some of those failures being as, as thoughtful and methodical as, as you are, um, you know, maybe take it in any way that you want to, to talk about it is, is either lessons learned, why it didn't work out, but because uh, failures, and that's, I think a lot of people have a fear of failure. And so that's why they don't do things. But I think your approach is, is the right approach that you're thinking of it like it's learning and you're chalking it up. So maybe if you can just kind of share some of those failures, if you have any, and what were they and what were some of the lessons learned? So as my cash flow increased, whether it was back in the days when I was working for World Series, being a pioneer and, and making good money, or today where my cash flow exceeds my expenses, that surplus, as far as the money left over every month, I valued that as, okay, I need to invest that money and learn. And that's all I wanted to do is invest and learn. And if I have a great outcome, great. If not, it's usually nine out of 10 is a not. And that's another learning experience for me to chalk up of continuing growing because in my journey of life, my happiness comes from growing, not sitting around and saying shoulda, coulda, woulda. And I've had that approach for 30 years. So I had a vending machine back in the days and thought that it was too labor intensive and decided to walk away from that. I flipped properties and was $3 million upside down and studied what went wrong? Why is it not working? And why is everyone wealthy in real estate? And cash flow came up. And, and now everyone's talking about cash flow. And I'm glad to hear that. And I, I think that's going to save us in this next downturn in real estate is everyone, in my opinion, is focused on cash flow versus speculation. I don't speculate. I think the Bitcoin era, I think uh, anything else that has to do with speculating is just not in my investment library. If you talk to me, if someone comes up to me with an investment idea, I need to know is it, if it's cash flowing. One of my probably best investments I've ever made was water machines. I'm a big component of water. I think water is in a serious issue with health and people, especially coming out of COVID, want to be healthy. So I invested in a, a competitor to Glacier and we have these water machines outside of uh, grocery stores and supermarkets. I've been in that for eight years and 
that's a steady cash flow um, business every single month. And the depreciation, the write-off is, is amazing. I mean, if you do it right, I mean, knock on wood, you don't have to pay taxes. I haven't paid taxes in 12 years because of the opportunities and assets that I've invested in. So to answer your question, I, I'm looking to fail. If I'm not failing, I'm not growing. And I'm, I probably throw money at something every six months that fails, but I chalk it up as a learning experience. That's interesting. I've, I've actually heard that now a few times, the water companies and, and what the nice little kind of cash flow. Maybe talk to me a little bit about that. I think that's a little bit of a different investment approach. I think a lot of people talk about the real estate and understand the Airbnb, kind of the arbitrage on the daily room rate versus a monthly rental uh, rate. Uh, what is it about the 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 water business? How does it operate? And then like, you know, maybe just talk through what the type of uh, returns and, and did you find that? Did you find an operator or you just happened to invest into a deal that was already kind of going on? So for the last 10 years, I'd spend it. And I forgot to say this, my daily activity. So in the afternoon, when I get home from my lunch, I'd spend two to three hours looking for investment ideas. Five days a week, religiously. I love it. I mean, it's excites me. And I looked at those businesses for sale and five years or eight years ago it was the water business. Great cash flow. Anytime I see great cash flow in the headlines, I click on it. I'm intrigued. I talked to the owner, seemed like a great guy, never met him, didn't go fly out and see his office and decided to invest a good chunk of change because I believed in him and I believed in water. I don't know. One of my gifts, I believe I feel like I can read people. But again, there's people that have burnt me and, and that's just chalk it up. And his idea was he was in the vending business and he sold his vending company and wanted to buy these water machines and place them throughout the United States. So I invested in 20 water machines and they started cash flowing. And every year I gave them more and more money. I think we're up to about a hundred water machines. And all you're doing is just changing a filter every quarter and having someone out there collect money. But now with technology, people are using credit cards so you can see the daily sales. To me, it made sense. It was simple. It was kindergarten. I believed in the person and knock on wood. It's been a great investment for about eight years and you get the depreciation because you're buying the machine. Yeah, that's one of the things we you know, haven't really got a chance to go into detail on some of these podcast shows, but there's a few people that you know, the, the bonus depreciation, the, the write-offs you get from investing into this. And I, I was like, you know, to be honest, the, the rich understand these things because they're looking at it. They're hiring the right tax attorneys. They're hiring the right CPAs that say, Hey, you invest into something that's equipment intensive, ATM machines, water machines, uh, you know, vending machines, uh, you know, and that's why, why I like hotel investment too. It's structured that way. There's a lot of equipment related to it. And it's also the tax code specifically written for because of the higher use of it. You get a, a additional write-offs, um, you know, from those particular asset types. And so, you know, again, it's great to make money, but, you know, Uncle Sam wants uh, his cut as well. And so the truly wealthy people are figuring out how do you mitigate some of that, that tax burden? Because it's like what you take home is way more important, the after-tax dollars than the net income. And there's so many people that are on uh, listeners to this podcast is 
are very good high income earners, make half a million, a million dollars a year, but they're paying half a million dollars in taxes. I mean, they're paying 50, 60% in their, their taxes, um, not only in their income, but if you calculate all the other taxes we pay, um, now you've just shortcutted that and started investing into these businesses. Um, how do you find, so what is that two, three hour looking at investments deal? Um, how have you structured that? Where are you finding these deals? Uh, because I, I think that's incredibly interesting because as a deal junkie, that sounds awesome to me. Uh, that's a great question. So, I mean, back in the days before cash flow was a word, uh, it was easy. Now, it, now it's a lot harder because everybody wants cash flow. So I would go on Google and type in cash flow investment. I would go on Craigslist and type in cash flow. Everything had to be cash flow related or I'm not going to invest in it. I don't do private equity. I don't invest in startups. I don't invest in businesses that maybe will pay me in three years or I have to exit to make money. So I, there's a very strict investment criteria I have. And because of that, um, it's very easy to say yes or no within seconds of looking at opportunities. Um, so the buying a business, I don't know what that website is, BizBuy or whatever. I mean, I was looking at that constantly. I was looking at Craigslist. There's probably 95% scans, but there's that 5% diamond in the rough. There's a 5% diamond in the rough, just like looking at a hundred homes, you're trying to find that one house. I'm looking at a thousand investments, trying to find that one investment. So you said every six months, one of your investments doesn't work out. So like, what is the consistency that you're making new investments? So are, are you making uh, a new investment every single month? Are you only, you know, uh, waiting for the right opportunity and then you're, you're moving significant chips into that investment? You know, if you're looking two to three hours a day, I'm just curious as far as your, you know, now your new investment thesis. I, I agree also that what you said earlier is that it's harder and harder because it seems like there's more competition looking for cash flow. Water business, you invested into it. Now it sounds like you just did a, a follow-on investment or, or many times. So when you're looking for these new deals, are you, you know, disciplined? I'm putting 50,000 a month or hundred thousand dollars a month into new investments. And every six months, one of them doesn't work out. Or are you just looking at, Hey, I'm looking for a good deal. And when that good deal happens, if it takes six months, a year or two years, then I'll go do that next investment. So that was the first five or six years. It was exactly what you would say. It was five or five or six hours trying to find an investment idea, throwing money at it, ideas every single month, losing more than winning. Then I finally realized I need to stop being a deal junkie and focus on what's working, the 80-20 world. Well, 80% of my income's coming from real estate. Why am I trying to deviate from what's working? And I think over the last couple of years, I've matured in the investment world and started to invest in more of things that are already working, i.e. like going in with the high-end Airbnbs, the water business. So I'm going more laser focused on those areas. I was doing covered calls. I was doing options. And that just didn't resonate for me. One, it takes work, which just doesn't meet my philosophy, my vision. And two, it wasn't fun for me. I've liquidated all my stock holdings. I didn't have much. And I'm focusing more on putting money into things 
that's working. That's the people that are running my Airbnb business, the water business, and going more in all that in on those opportunities versus trying to find newer ideas. Because I believe I'm at maybe at that second phase of my investment life where I don't need to start uh, chasing all these opportunities and more focusing on the opportunities that are working. Yeah, no, that makes a lot, a lot of sense as far as, um, even just maybe the evolution of you as a, as an investor. So let's, let's take this, uh, um, if you're giving advice as a coach, you're coaching these young kids and, and, you know, telling them no in adversity, but let's put yourself and put your coach hat on to coaching someone that is, let's say in, in the average listener of this podcast, they're, they're making good income. They're a doctor. Um, they're paying lots of taxes. They want to, you know, move closer to your lifestyle than just working more hours. Um, even though it's a high dollar an hour kind of uh, wage, um, what are the first steps? Is there books? Is there things um, that you did, or if you were just kind of again coach them? What What are the first things that you would coach someone to do? I mean, I hear this many, many times and people give the same advice and it didn't click maybe until a couple of years ago. And that's invest in yourself through seminars, through masterminds, through reading, but be patient on that because I've done all that. And 80% of the time I'm like, okay, that seemed like a waste of time or that I didn't get anything from it. But that 1%, again, going back to being that one percenter, that 1% when you read that one book, The Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or when you joined that mastermind and you got that 1% idea, or when you're talking to a buddy and you got that 1% idea, that 1% has, has made me 99% of my income. And so it's surrounding yourself with energy that you want to be a part of. And that's what I've learned to do. I want to be part of these high-end Airbnbs. So I'm creating a mastermind and surrounding myself with energy of people that are part of that high-end Airbnb and surrounding myself with the best of the best. Anything I want to do, I want to find the best person on that. And I want to be part of that, that group, part of that person and learn from that person. Yeah. I think that is just, um, I sound like just a, a parrot repeating these same things. It's, it's such great advice as far as looking at the people first looking at the people that are doing it the best and just kind of getting around them or partnering with them. Um, so many people. And it's like when you're trying to figure it out on your own and, and I don't know, you know, maybe people just hit a home run uh, every single time that they went up to bat, but oftentimes you suck at stuff when you first start out. So how do you not suck? Well, you get other people that don't suck or have already gone through the lessons and, and just figured it out. Or maybe that's just who they are is they're really good at uh, that particular thing that you're looking at. And obviously, I think it's the lens and, and the frame and what you're thinking of this. Um, just your, your thinking of it is, again, I, I, reiterating this is who can do this? Who already does this, who not only who can do this, but who is the best at this. And that's this, I mean, wonderful, wonderful advice that, um, 
So talk to me a little bit more about this, this mastermind and this high end, you know, uh, mastermind. Is this some program that you're coaching people on or collectively going to host conferences? Um, I mean, because it sounds very interesting. So I don't know. I love coaching sports, but coaching business or being coached to investors just doesn't resonate for me. It's not in my life dream. I don't know why, but I'm not going to second guess my voice. So I don't want to coach anybody. So, but uh, I want to continue to learn. I've been part of entrepreneur organizations, which is the top business owners in the world. I've been with them for 15 years. I just recently joined GoBundance, which is, in my opinion, the top investors in the world, particularly in real estate. So surrounding myself with the best of the best in certain areas, those are the type of masterminds that I want to join and, and be a part of. The count accountability piece is huge and I'm working on becoming better at accountability and, and living the best life ever and being the best version of myself every single day. And I think the next step for me is the accountability and holding myself accountable of growing every single day. Yeah. As we're getting closer to kind of wrapping up the show, there's a couple of things, a little bit more kind of bullet pointed uh, questions. And so I don't know, I didn't prep you for this. So uh, I, I would ask is what is one of the things that you have spent money on that has given you more freedom in your life? Or maybe the best thing that you have spent money on. And I'll give you some examples. Um, somebody the other day, I was talking to them, they, I, I asked them this question. They said, hired someone to fold their laundry. Cause he was like, it was literally like, it was like one of the most painful things that he and his wife always talked about. And he was like this, I don't know what the lady comes in. And I think it was like 40 bucks a week. And he's like, what an amazing thing is the best $40 I've ever spent in my life. And I love spending it every single week because it gives us freedom that we don't have to go fold the laundry. So that may be an illustration. Uh, somebody else was talking about the, the books. You know, they bought a book because it made them money. Every single nonfiction book has helped them make money at some point in their career, not instantaneously. So what has been the thing that you have spent money on that has given you the best return on investment for freedom? I mean, this is an easy answer for me. And it makes me frustrated to hear the DIY or DIY out there especially people who want to do Airbnbs and learn to do it themselves. It, it drives me crazy. The, when I bought these homes, I forced my best friend to be my property manager. I reverse engineer everything. And I haven't heard one podcast or anyone preach or praise property managers. In fact, everyone puts them down. By far, the best investment I ever made was property management in my homes, in my Airbnbs, in my luxury and Airbnb. Yeah, you might hire the wrong property management, but why are you giving up? Go find another property manager. I vet that person harder than I vet, vet real estate. So I, I do my laundry. I do my dishes because I have so much freedom that I'm able to do that stuff. And it's fun because I don't have to worry about one thing about my business. That is an amazing answer. And you're right. I don't know of anyone that has said property management, but to your point, how valuable are property managers? <laughs> They're the ones, nobody wants to do real estate because they don't want to deal with the, the, the toilets, the calls in the middle of the night. You know who does deal with those things? 
property managers. They do call when the toilet's backed up and they call the plumber and organize uh, that fix happening. So what, what a, a um, super awesome uh, example. Uh, another thing that I, I tend to ask about people is, is books, books that made a significant impact on their life, either that they've gifted uh, to other people or recommended, um, you know, or maybe it's just a book that has been, is, you know, uh, the best or that, that one percent or difference in, in your life. So again, being a people person and understanding people and working with people is the key to success. And the best book that, that I read that resonated strong and turned my personality around to be, to love people was how to win friends and influence people. And I give that to all my eighth graders on my sports teams every single year to read that book. Dale Carnegie for any of the people that, uh, have not heard of that book again, it's, it's, it's a timeless classic. Like, I mean, it, has it been around a hundred years now? Yeah. I want to say a hundred years. And I think almost every successful person that I have ever come across has put that in maybe their, their top 10 of books or maybe top 20 of books. There's so much value. There's and I'm not going to say that um, new books that come out every week or every year uh, aren't valuable, but how much more valuable those classics are that that you know uh, permeate time and now a century, and how true that that information is. So Ray, as we're wrapping up, um, I, I have another question of of you, and it's 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 for the audience. What can the audience do for you? What is an ask or if there is a deal that you're type of looking at, uh, obviously with lots of cash flow and very little involvement, but uh, how, how can they help you or what is your ask of the audience? My ask of the audience is exactly what I ask for my players. And you're probably going to mute this is stop being a pussy. And when you hear no, get out of your bed and keep digging and keep fighting. And the more no's you hear, you're going to get to your yes. I think the coming age with people coming out of COVID and dealing with adversity is, is negative. And we got to get back to the roots of our grandparents who fought during the, the uh, great depression and realize that no was just closer to yes. So I asked the audience to get back to that and stop being soft. Actually, I don't think I'm going to cut that. I think that's <laughs> going to be the title of the episode. Uh, Ray Cardano, don't be a pussy. Uh, uh, guys, thank you again for another Passive Wealth Principles podcast. We look forward to uh, connecting up on another episode soon. And thank you, Ray. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.RealEstate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there 
as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithns.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.